0: at Brian McClanahan, like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to McClanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. When you do enroll, you get a free course. You can either get that free course without enrolling. You'll have to enroll when you get the class. Or you can just enroll and then wait for the email and get the free course. But either way, I give you a course free of charge. So you want that. Plus, if you're a member of McClanahan Academy, you get all the best deals on forthcoming courses. You get the best coupons on current courses. You get all the great stuff. So it's a great way to support the show. I've got nine classes available for purchase there now. So you want to pick one of those up. My newest is the American Presidents. It's a look at the 45 men who have been Presidents, not just in the United States, but in what is the United States of America today. We've had 45 men hold that position. So it's a, I think it's a fantastic class. People ask me all the time, what do you think about this president or that president? Well, I give you all of them in that class. So you're going to want to get it. And of course, if you were a member when the class came out, you got the best deals. So uh, it's a great class. Of course, I've got other stuff there. It's homeschooling time, just to pitch that a little bit. April is when usually uh, people usually buy homeschool curriculum. So I've got my U.S. History Survey course. It's a great homeschool class if that's what you're looking for. So I've got everything you want there. If you're just looking at continuing education, homeschool education, whatever it is, McClanahan Academy is for you. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also get your book plates there. You can go to Learn True History, T-R-U-E, Learn True History. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Also a great way to support the show, you can get that shop tab, get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of stuff. I've also got the Think Locally, Act Locally materials, stickers, T-shirts, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, the stickers are very popular on that logo, the Think Locally, Act Locally. So people stick them on their car and, it's just a great phrase. You don't have my name on it. It's just think locally, act locally. So, that's the whole point of the of the podcast. Localism. Most of the time. And so, uh, get that stuff too. And I do appreciate your support. Share the podcast on social media. Uh, rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review. The more eyeballs, the better. And the more we can spread the message. Okay, well, if you're like me, you're probably tired of coronavirus all the time. I mean... You go to any website, it's coronavirus all the time. And, of course, this is a major issue. I mean, never in the history of the United States has it been shut down like this. And I think people are wondering what's the neck. I mean, what's what's the end game? What's the game plan? Where do we go from here? Now there's talk at, uh, from some from some medical professionals of having social distancing or uh, for 18 months. I mean, I saw this even when this first began, that people were talking about that. 18 months. Um, and I mean that I'm not certain how life goes back to normal if this is what we're talking about for 18 months. So this is uh, a major catastrophic event. Not that the, I mean the virus is nasty, but the response to the virus has been even nastier. And I think that's I mean why people are so interested in this particular situation, what are we going to do? I mean, how are we going to get back to normal? How do we have the things that we enjoy in American society? Not just that, Western civilization. I mean, look, Europe's dealing with the same situation. How do we get back to normal? I've mentioned to, to friends that I don't believe we're going to have major sporting events until next year at the earliest. I mean, I don't think we're going to really have the sport. I know, I know baseball is talking about coming back, but it's not going to be when we were talking about playing in minor league parks with no fans, the, the players sitting in the stands. I mean, this is going to be weird. It was weird when the Orioles had to play when there were Baltimore riots going on with no fans in the stands. It was eerie. And now we're talking about doing a whole season that way. Football. I mean, I, I don't see how you're going to play football this year. Unless we have massive testing and everybody just gets tested all the time and you know, but you could have entire teams out then. I mean, what happens if a team gets sick? <laughs> you got you got twenty-two members of a team sick, or twenty-five members. I mean, you do you forfeit the games? How does that work? So I mean, we're we're looking at a major shift. No concerts. No, none of the things that people like in American society: plays, movie theaters, restaurants. We are an entertainment-driven society. I mean, it, it's it's clear this is what's happening. We're entertainment-driven. So how does that get back to normal? But that's, I mean, these are things that, and of course the economy, 30% of the population now is not going to have a job because they're service economy in a way that uh, people can't enjoy anymore. So what do you do with that? I mean, Spain's talking about universal basic income now. This is this is a cataclysmic shift in how people think about society. Um, so it's a little depressing so I thought, well, let's change let's change it up and talk about something else. And it's something that I'm interested in. Um, and I know you, you send me your requests, and I do look at these, and I process them and try to go through and think, oh, how could I make a podcast out of that? A lot of them now are coronavirus-centered. My liberties are here, or this is my state constitution. So, I mean, yeah, that, that's that's I, I want to get away from that for at least one episode and maybe do something different. And I, and I did that with Franklin Roosevelt again. And so we're going to go back to that period of time, 1940s. And we're going to look at World War II. And one of the major uh, events of World War II, of course, was the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the United States using atomic weapons. Using nuclear weapons. This was a major event for several reasons. Number one, it was the first use and only use of nuclear weapons in the history of the world other than a test. That they were actually dropped on a population. And, of course, the narrative at that point was these weapons saved lives, saved a million American lives, because if the United States had to invade Japan in 1945, it would have cost a million lives, a million soldiers would have died had those bombs not been used. And, of course, the United States was preparing for a mainland invasion of Japan. We had fought and slugged our way right to the Shores of Japan, the most famous battles leading up to that point were Iwo Jima. uh, At least one of them, Iwo Jima. It's what uh, people focus on. Of course, Okinawa was also nasty. But they had slugged their way across the Pacific, island hopping. Probably one of the most important battles in that entire process was Peleliu. People don't know about Peleliu, um, but Peleliu was um, just devastating. Uh, it was the Pacific version of D-Day. Uh, and that battle is always interesting to me because of what the American soldiers there on Peleliu had to go through to take the island. I mean, it really is. You you, you sit back and you, and you read what these guys went through and you read the suffering and the the, I mean, the uh, astronomical objective in front of them and that they did it. I and mean, they had to cross an airfield with very little cover in the face of machine gun and mortar fire. and art- I mean, and they did it. It's, it's amazing. The fortitude of those men on that island. Uh, now we're worried about, you know, not being able to play video games enough or uh, it's the... the The American character has been severely uh, downgraded in the last 70 years. But regardless, uh, you look at this Pacific theater, and then you look at what happened with the bombs, and it's always been, since 1945, that, well, these bombs saved lives. Well, this was challenged in the 1960s. In the 1960s, basically almost, in 1969, there was a challenge put forward to this thesis that the bombs were unnecessary. And I remember I used to show a video uh, in my college courses on this particular topic. And of course, I teach in an area that's got a lot of military families, a lot of soldiers themselves that come into my classes. So we get we get a really interesting group of people. Um, and when you bring up Atomic warfare. What what's really interesting to me about this is that people think soldiers are going to be so rah rah pro U.S. that they just. But in so many ways, I mean, these are these are just people, and they're the ones who are getting put on the front lines, and they want to hear about policy. You see, the the problem is not the soldiers. I mean, the soldiers go out, and they do what they're told. They're soldiers. This is what you do. The problem has always been strategy and policy, and they don't make that. Soldiers don't make that. Now, I mean, you do have the diehards and people that are going to go out, and I mean, this is United States, right or wrong, rah, rah. And I've had many uh, different families, military families, whether it's the soldiers themselves or the wives and whatnot, um, who get uh, a little bit uncomfortable when I start talking about American imperialism. And I start uh, discussing some of the problems with American foreign policy because they think that's a direct attack on them, and it's not. It's an attack on leadership in the United States and policy, which has been directed since the 1950s by a group of globalists. Uh, I mean, really, the, the transformational presidencies were Truman and Eisenhower. And Eisenhower was, and this is where I get into the American president's class. I mean, Eisenhower was is so important for our understanding of modern American foreign policy. We could have had it different. If Robert Taft had been nominated by the Republican Party, American foreign policy might have gone in a different direction. Of course, Truman had already set the stage, and Truman was um, compensating because he was being attacked for being too soft on communism. He had communists in his cabinet. He was being attacked for being too soft on communism, so he went in 180 degrees the other direction and helped produce the climate of the Cold War. But regardless... Um, this idea of the bombs and why the bombs were dropped and that they were unnecessary. Uh, in the video, you had uh, Marines who were interviewed, of course, who had suffered terribly under the hands of the Japanese and in Japanese internment camps. And these things were awful. I mean, there's, uh, there's little doubt that the Americans who were imprisoned in Japan during the war were subjected to horrible, horrible treatment, and and many of them died, of course. And so this one of this Marines said, you know, the only the only regret I have about the atomic weapons is that we didn't drop 70 of them on Japan. It was retribution for this man. It was not strategy. It wasn't about saving American lives. It was about punishing the Japanese for abusing him and his comrades in an internment camp. And I can completely understand that. I mean you're abused, you're tortured. And you want revenge. So the bombs served that purpose. At least it's thought. But in nineteen sixty nine it was put forward that they were unnecessary, that the war would have ended anyways. And so that became a very controversial thesis. And there's this book out, came out a few years ago. Um, It's entitled Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons, and it's written by a man named Ward Wilson. Really interesting thesis, and what he does is he goes through what he thinks are the most pressing myths about nuclear weapons in America, and one of those has to do with World War II, and he brings up that in 1995, 50 years after the bomb was dropped, the bombs were dropped on Japan, there was an attempt by the Smithsonian to put a display up about this, and... The backlash that came from that. Now, look, if you go to the Air and Space Museum, they have the Enola Gay, the the plane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. They have it sitting there, and there's always controversy about the Enola Gay. Should the Enola Gay be on display? Is that a symbol of war crimes for the United States? Was dropping the first bomb, or at least the the one that's always criticized is the second. The first might have been necessary, but the second completely unnecessary. There is a reason the second bomb was dropped. It's very clear. And I think that Ward Wilson doesn't really get into this, but it gets into the Cold War. I mean, we're already in it in 1945. But there is, and and that's not Wilson's point. I mean, he's not really getting into the politics of it. He even says that up front. Look, I'm not talking about this. I'm just talking about the... the, uh, very pragmatic view, was the bomb what ended the war? That's all he's looking at. Was it the bomb that ended the war? So I'll get into that. But there is a reason why the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. It was to show the Soviet Union, which plays into his narrative about did the bomb end the war, to show the Soviet Union that we weren't afraid to use the big stuff, as Harry Truman said, the big stuff going to use the big stuff unless you back off. And see, that's the key. The back off is the key. You see, the Soviet Union was interested in also invading Japan. And they were in a better position to do so because they were closer. So what would have happened had the Soviet Union invaded Japan? What would World War II have looked like at that point? If the Soviet Union invades Japan, what happens... To Asia. We had already seen Soviet influence in uh, other parts of Asia. And of course, you get the division of Korea, which turned out to be quite an issue for the United States moving forward in the Cold War. So, what happens if the Soviet Union gets into Japan and now we have a divided Japan? We have a divided Germany. We could have a divided Korea and a divided Japan. What would that have looked like? So there was certainly an interest in the United States in keeping the Soviets out of Japan. And this is where Wilson gets into the narrative about the bomb. And so I'm going to take a very quick break, and I'm going to talk about his position in the book, the last half of the podcast, and get into some of these things. I'll see you on the other side. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse. And students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got... Enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school h- history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about the bomb, World War II. How effective was the bomb in ending the war? That's, that's the theory. We dropped two bombs on Japan. They surrender the next day. The bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki ended the war for the United States and, of course, the war in the, the Pacific theater. That's what caused the end of the war. And so Ward Wilson takes issue with this. And this is a, this is the article I have here is essentially a chapter from this book, Five Myths, let me get the title right again, Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons. And, uh, I mean, look, one of, the, one of the areas I focused in in graduate school was military history, and this goes back to Bernard Brody. Now, if you don't know anything about Bernard Brody, Bernard Brody was a nuclear strategist for the United States. He actually is the guy that came up with the theory of deterrence, that more nuclear weapons prevents war. And this has been, I mean, when I was taking my comprehensive exams for military history, this was something we had. I had to talk about. You know, this whole idea of deterrence, uh, the theory of deterrence. Ward Wilson directly attacks that. He says it's not true. There is no deterrence. Now, this is—I mean, look, this is a big mountain to try to to try to take a sledgehammer to. Because it's it's basically the hedge that's been developed with the American nuclear weapons program. We need these things because if we don't have nuclear weapons, we have war with the Soviet Union. In some ways, you can see Bernard Brody's point. Now, a side note with Bernard Brody. He was married to a historian, Fawn Brody. Fawn Brody uh, wrote (laughs) some of the most garbage histories. Now, she did write a very good history of of Thad Stevens, I think it was, um, where she gets into these radical Republicans, and she's not too kind to them. It's interesting. But she also, you know... Uh, talked about the uh, f- essentially the fetishes of the founding generation. The this is in this is a psycho history. When a psycho, we're going to put the founding fathers on the couch and we're going to analyze them. Did Jefferson really have this uh, this desire, uh, you know, to uh, to be with family members, you know, kind of thing? Um, it's strange stuff. But regardless, so she's married to to Bernard Brody and or Bernard Brody's married to Fawn Brody. But Bernard Brody. Um, was uh, a pioneer in this idea that we need to have nuclear deterrence, and when you look at some events in American history, I mean, you go back and you move forward in time, right? We we look at the Berlin the Berlin airlift. Well, even I mean, Ward Wilson talks about this. The only reason the Germans capitulated, the Soviets capitulated in in East Germany, is because Harry Truman brought in the B-29s and set them up and said, if you don't do something, we're going to bomb you. So there you go. There's evidence that the nuclear deterrence works. It prevents a greater war. Or when you look at, say, the blockade uh, that was established during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Soviet Union is bringing missiles into Cuba. And, of course, there's a missile gap at this point. It's thought, well, the Soviets didn't want to go to war with the United States because they didn't have as many missiles. And so this is where Eisenhower, of course, that's the Kennedy administration, but this is where Eisenhower in the 1950s was putting missile nuclear warheads on everything. We're going to we're going to even we're going to put them on tanks, we're going to put them in artillery pieces, we're going to put them on airplanes. We're even going to have an infantry deliverable nuclear weapon called the Davy Crockett. And if you ever get to go to Columbus, Georgia in the Infantry Museum there, they've got a fully assembled Davy Crockett weapon. I've seen two of these, one not fully assembled and one fully assembled. And one of the times when I was in there, uh, there was actually, it was a very crowded day. They get How are you going to go to museums after coronavirus? I mean, are you going to let 10 people in at a time to go to museums? How does this work? Uh, so we're in this museum, it's very crowded and there's a guy, an older guy sitting there looking at this thing and, uh, he started talking about it. He was one of the members who was on one of the units that was tasked with delivering one of these things. If you, you know, so you're going to launch this little nuclear warhead off and hope you don't get blown up in the process. So, I mean, look, this is all part of it. So the bombs saved America. They ended the war. And well, Ward Wilson says this is complete bunk. They didn't do any of that. The Japanese were already interested in surrendering, number one. They had already convened their high military council. They knew about the bombs. And it took them three days to convene the council, essentially, after Hiroshima. They weren't that they weren't in that big of a hurry. And he says, look, even when you look at the War for Southern Independence, and how long it took... McClellan was seen as dragging his feet, but it only took him 12 hours to go and march out to try to confront Lee in Maryland. It took three days for the Japanese to do this. Three days. Now, of course, there were a lot of reservations. The United States was demanding unconditional surrender. They didn't know what they would do with the emperor. I mean, it's a lot of political considerations, but it took three days. And he also points out, well, look, the bomb itself wasn't nearly as destructive as the American bombing campaign that took place beginning March 1945 and lasting to August 1945. His point was there was very little left of Japan to blow up. It just it wasn't there. I mean, the United States had been firebombing. They firebombed Tokyo in March of 1945, a more destructive attack than the bomb that was dropped on either Hiroshima or Nagasaki in terms of loss of life, destruction of the city. I mean, this is conventional weapons. And he says, hey, look, the United States was dropping four to five kilotons of bombs a day on Japan, whereas the bomb that was dropped on on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you're looking at about a 20 kiloton device in each case. So within less than a week, they've dropped that much ordnance on Japan. And the, and the Japanese military didn't care. You were seeing massive civilian loss of life. And, uh, yeah, I mean, look, Hiroshima, two-thirds of the city was wiped out. And the mayor actually contacted the Japanese military command and said, look, this is the situation. They didn't do anything about it. In fact, his point is they didn't care. They didn't care about about civilian loss of life. Because what really mattered to the Japanese military was not that. It was maintaining the emperor. So what did end the war? Ward Wilson's contention is, what ended the war was a Soviet threat of invasion. This is what ended the war in the Pacific, because the Soviet Union was preparing militarily to advance on Japan. The Japanese couldn't face a two-front war, in essence. They didn't have the manpower or the resources any longer to fight the Soviet invasion from, essentially, the north and the American invasion from the south. It would end in disaster. So they had to come up with a way to save face, to end the war without being completely invaded. And they got, essentially, the emperor. He didn't didn't have to, they didn't get rid of him. They didn't put him on trial. That was the other fear. You're already convening war crimes trials in Europe for Nazi leaders. Well, why not do the same to the emperor and put the Japanese on trial? I mean, look, they had been brutal in China. They have been brutal in their treatment of American prisoners of war or any foreign prisoners of war, brutal in these things. So why not put these individuals on trial? And of course, there were no war crimes trials for Japan, only for the Nazis. And that was essentially through negotiation. So you look at this argument that Ward Wilson makes, and I think it's a it's a pretty solid argument. The threat of a Soviet invasion in the north was what brought the Japanese to surrender. And even when you look at uh, Potsdam, where Truman and Stalin were there, and there was some discussion about the bomb, and of course, Stalin knew about it. I mean, uh, there's a theory that you know Stalin didn't really understand. I think Stalin did know about it. Um, and they had been looking at their own nuclear program. Of course, it took, took a little longer. They had to steal American secrets, but they knew about some of these things. The Japanese even knew about nuclear weapons. They were developing a nuclear weapons program. And uh, you know, But the idea was that we're going to blow this bomb up, and it's going to stop you from invading. Because if you continue advance, we're going to use these on you, is the theory. That that would have been the case. I'm not so certain that Stalin back, I mean, we don't know 100% if Stalin backed off because he became afraid that the United States would use nuclear weapons on the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union did not, yet, did not yet possess these weapons. It took them a little bit longer to obtain those weapons. But I think nuclear warfare was inevitable. Or nuclear weapons, I should say, was inevitable at some point. Ward Wilson's contention is that we don't need these things. There can be a non-nuclear age. Nuclear weapons are not essential for deterring conflict. But on the other hand, I think there is a psychological position for a lot of people, not just in leadership, but there is a psychological position here. Hey, we've got, the, we've got the nukes, you know, and we're crazy enough to use them on you. And so you deal with a civilian population that would be the primary targets of these kind of weapons. You point to the excesses of the 80s, the 70s and i think there was something to pop culture at that time period the 50s to the 80s there was something to the pop culture of america that you know hey we're going to die anyways the soviets are going to us into oblivion let's have a good time i'm curious as to see if whether there's going to be a, a a rubber band effect with these quarantine how americans are going to deal with this when some of the things are lifted and what's going to happen or Americans going to go party hard because, hey, they haven't been able to do so? The world's going to end anyways. We're gonna, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, it's interesting to see how the psychological impact of this particular quarantine. But, of course, when you look at the, nuclear, the potential for nuclear destruction and people thinking, well, heck, I'm going to die anyways. I might as well have a good time. I think that's certainly part of it for Americans, not necessarily for the Soviets because they couldn't do anything. The Soviet people were the victims of communism as well. The people of Russia were the victims of communism. The current population of China, are the victims of communism. In Cuba, they're the victims. Now you have the diehards, again, you have you have the you have the Reds who just think, Man, we're, gonna, we're gonna do this. You have that, but then you have the people that really do suffer under communism. The North Koreans are the victims. And, of course, in the, in the United States, in the, in the Soviet Union, the victims were the people that were suffering under this threat of nuclear holocaust. And even War Wilson gets into that in the book, he starts talking about, you know, where the psychological key to this, and it is a psychological point. Look at this destruction. Look what's happened. Look at all these things. There's a psychological point here that the bombs served. But his point, I think, is well made and I think well taken. The bombs didn't end the war. The Japanese were going to surrender regardless. So were the bombs necessary? And his, I mean, he says no, they weren't necessary. They weren't necessary at all. It wasn't necessary at all to drop the bombs on Japan. And so he's an advocate for uh, ending nuclear weapons programs. And of course, back in the 80s, this guy would have been seen as a commie. He's I mean, the only commies would want to end nuclear weapons programs. And this is where, you know, things have changed a little bit in terms of interpretation and political positioning. Only commies want to get rid of nuclear weapons. The nuclear genie is out of the bottle. He 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 addresses this and he says the well, world it's really not. I mean we we could we could change course. I mean the nuclear weapons aren't Aren't necessary at all because the primary target in any nuclear war is going to be civilian populations. I mean, even if you're targeting, say, a military base, well, it's so destructive, you're going to blow up everything around it. When you look at, for example, the Soviet Union's Tsar bomber, right, and the amount of destruction that thing could unleash on a civilian population, I mean, it's, yeah, it's going to annihilate the military installation that is targeted, but we're not targeting military installations all the time. We're targeting major met- metropolitan areas because it's the psychological damage that these bombs are going after, not infrastructure. He I mean, uh, Wilson points out the bombs, Hiroshima and there was nothing left to blow up. There was nothing there, really at that point. So this is contentious though. I mean this is we're at a point now and we're looking you know, 60, 70 years on, um, from these things, eighty years almost on, we're we're at that point, and uh, there's there's a serious discussion to be had about the use of nuclear warfare, the the way the United States waged war in Japan was it bordering on war crimes? I and mean, this is something that you back even thirty years ago, if you said something like that, oh my gosh, you're just a pinko, you're a commie, why would you say that? But did the United States do something that was almost criminal in their treatment? And, and this gets, I mean, the, the context here, of course, goes into this idea of w- what do you do to subdue the enemy? Is anything on the table to subdue the enemy? Are chemical weapons on the table? Are nuclear weapons on the table? Is civilian—is po- destroying civilian populations? Is that on the table? Is that how we want to wage war? In some ways, you can look at the 18th century and its rules of warfare as a preferable way of war. You fought wars on the battlefield. Civilian populations were generally left alone. You didn't attack civilians. There were rules of engagement. This gets into this whole Western way of warfare that was essentially lost by the time you get to the 19th century. And larger and larger armies and the way you had to wage war at that point. That's a whole nother ball ballgame, which I, this is the stuff that I really like focusing on in military history. Um, and... Changing the changing nature of war. Now, on the other hand, we're looking at using drone strikes and the limited nature of warfare. And uh, do we have we have these what are called low-intensity conflicts now. But civilian populations are, of course, in the crosshairs of all that stuff. So, I mean, where does all that fit in? It's interesting. Interesting debates. Nuclear weapons are the big explosion. People, I mean, look, they're fascinating to watch. People love to see these things. It's just a big bomb. It blows up and you're thinking, wow. There's the radiation and all. But I mean, you're thinking, wow, that's amazing. It's the natural inclination to want to see that. I mean, you just get the biggest firework you can see. You want to see it. And I think that's part of it. So I actually agree with with uh Wilson that the bombs were not necessary, didn't end the war. I mean, the Japanese were looking to surrender anyways. The Soviet Soviet push into potential push into northern Japan might have been the key that brought the Japanese to surrender and of course assurances about the about the emperor, other things that were going on. The bomb the second bomb really was unnecessary and uh, didn't do anything to end the war, um, even though uh, it's been the great myth of the uh, situation for generations. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast that's in many ways coronavirus free. You're not going to get coronavirus from this podcast. You're not going to get, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to talk about much of coronavirus. I'll probably get into it again, but uh, for right now, I mean, I didn't mention it, but I want to talk about something else. So enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan.